the government is supposed to govern with the consent of the government. And, you know, if we are trying to systematically make it harder for the people that are governed to have their voices heard, that's anti-American. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. So this is Incentives and Instincts, episode N plus one, or as we'll call it, the voting episode. I'm here with Bryce Ward. How are you today, Bryce? I'm good. It's a unseasonably warm October day here in Missoula. Yeah, the stretch of weather we have had is unbelievable. We are in October. We're approaching late October. The election is nigh. A couple of years back, you and I collaborated on some turnout work associated with the 2018 midterms. So I know this is a topic you've thought deeply about and you continue to think deeply about. Before we get into that, however, let's do a little bit of table setting. Not many people know that the largest political party in the United States is those people who don't vote. And to me, that seems like a problem or at least not an optimal state. But the answer to whether or not it's actually a problem is, is not totally obvious. Bryce, how do you kind of start to think about this question of you know, who do we want to vote? Do we want everybody to vote? How, how do we get our heads around it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a hard question to ultimately get your head around because there's a bunch of parts. But I mean, I think if you distill it down, the question you have to start with is, well, why do we vote at all? Hmm. And second part is, well, what's the problem if not everybody votes? And in particular, yeah. I think it's a question of who is who exactly isn't voting and how does that then affect, you know, going back to the top question, you know, what we're trying to do with voting in, in the first place, which is, look, the state has power and the state can exercise that power. And the, and the goal of any form of democracy is that the exercise of state power is accountable and tied to the will of the people. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to try and use state power to solve problems, we want the state to going back to our last cut or, you know, a few episodes ago, a identify problems that people actually care about and b make the trade-offs that they face when weighing the potential solutions to those in ways that people are generally okay with. And if, you know, the problem with voting becomes if people aren't voting and the state is not identifying the correct set of problems to improve overall welfare, uh, if they're favoring one group over another or ignoring some set of problems, you know, systematically, then yeah, you end up, you end up with a worse, well, you end up with lower overall welfare in your society, but also you just end up with kind of, you know, it, there's just some ickiness at least from my perspective, if the state is systematically ignoring the will of the people. Well, yeah, I mean, that would seem to bleed toward you know, authoritarian regime, dictatorships, etc. So let's accept the premise, uh, at least I think you and I agree, that democracy is, 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 is good. Like we want, we want the, the people to express their will and for elected officials to reflect that will in their decision making is it that that would do we agree on that premise well yeah i mean i think churchill's right that democracy is the worst form of government except for everything else that's ever been tried 
Right. Uh, which is to <laughs> say, like that, say that about so many things these days. Yeah. I mean, which is to say, look, it's not perfect. And, it, you know, there's obviously trade-offs and you don't always get what you want, but there is something inherently, I think, good or optimal about a system of government that ties the exercise of state power to the consent of those over whom that power is being exercised. Okay. So the obvious second question, and I don't know if it's we should go in a direct line to the second question, but is, are, are we in our current form a democracy or some form of a democracy? But as we said before, most people don't vote. Is that a bad thing that most people don't vote? Have we, how do we think about that? Well, the majority of people do vote, but, uh, you know, so it's roughly, it depends on the election. But in 2016, at least, uh, you know, we had 140 million people vote and 100 million people not vote. So, you know, sure. we got slightly over, in, in, at least in, you know, in a presidential election, we tend to get a majority of eligible people to vote. But obviously, 100 million people not voting is a lot of people. Like um, but, you know, so, I mean, the question whether or not low turnout is a problem really depends on the extent to which turnout is representative, right? So, I, you know, I could easily right. imagine a system where we got rid of, you know, look, one, one of my earliest economics classes I took was, you know, the professor basically saying that voting is irrational, mm-hmm. right? Because the marginal, your odds of changing the outcome of the election are infinitesimal i.e. there's basically no benefit to you in expectation of voting um, from a electoral outcome standpoint. And we'll get, I'll come back to that. But it's very costly. But yet we still, you know, so the question really becomes is, well, how many people need to vote and who do we need to vote? And yeah, I guess in theory, you could say, look, as long as we had a true representative sample, mm-hmm then, you know, okay, whatever, maybe at the margin, it doesn't matter as much. But to the extent that the voting population is absolutely not representative of the voting eligible population, and in particular, you know, we can divide non-voters into two groups. There's a group of people who just don't care, right? They, they literally don't want to pay attention. They don't want to vote. You know, there's, they, they absolutely are agnostic with respect to political outcomes. But there's another group of people who probably who do want to vote, are interested in politics and care about issues, but don't vote because of the barriers that we throw in their way. And to the extent it is the barriers that we have created that are the impediment to voting, then we absolutely have a problem. Now, I actually think yeah. that the first group is a problem too, but like to the extent that we have tilted the playing field by erecting barriers to voting for some groups, you know, and that is the reason why they don't vote or they're disproportionate or less likely to vote, then we have, in some sense, skewed the exercise of power away from the will of the people. And therefore, we're not going to get the optimal outcome that we're supposed to be getting under, you know, the Democratic ideals that I think we've uh, we've set out for ourselves. Right. So let's just draw that out a little bit. Like the, the premise, basic premise is that if, if the population of people who don't vote looks different than the population of people that do vote, that, then we have an imbalance. And then, then within that population that choose not to vote 
or don't vote. Um, yeah, the people that don't care, well, how do they, what's that group look like relative to those who vote? And then the people that are, uh, in your words, sort of obstructed from voting, what do they look like relative to the population that is voting? And I think in terms of like first order problems to solve, like that one is a big one we should be looking at. Do we know much about the differences between those groups, those who are obstructed in some way from voting versus the population that does vote? Yeah, we have lots of information about this, right? So we know that, so let's just start, who doesn't vote? Younger people are less likely to vote. Uh, Certain minority groups are less likely to vote. Lower income people are less likely to vote. So, you know, those look a lot like the standard set of barriers, right? Oh, disabled people are less likely to vote. Indeed. Um, And so, you know, those, those are the standard set of people who face barriers to anything. And so you go, okay, well, let's, well, what are these barriers, right? Well, at, at the highest level, it's literally just not understanding the process. Right. Right. We don't make it easy to vote. In a lot of states, you have to register by a certain deadline. Uh, then you've got to go to a certain spot to vote. And believe it or not, and I, I was stunned when I found this out, like in a lot of cases, the place where you vote isn't actually the closest polling station to your house. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's like, no, no, you got to drive past those four polling stations and you got to vote over there. And, um, and then in spite of all the ads that we see on television, we do a very poor job of educating people about what they're voting for. Right. One of the Mm -hmm. things that actually stunned me when I moved here, because I, until I moved here six and a half years ago, I was a, Oregon voter. And in Oregon, the state, when they send you your ballot, because in Oregon, voting has been done by mail for my entire electoral life or everything. Very effectively, election. right? With no uh, recorded fraud. Yeah. You know, um, when they send you your ballot, you also get what's called the voter pamphlet. And mm-hmm. it's this book, right? And, you know, anybody can put a statement in there and, you know, there's a whole bunch of processes, you know, and so basically every candidate has a statement and then has statements of people who are supporting them. And every ballot issue is explained and has people can write in and say, you know, this is why we should do this or this is why you should. And it's basically like, I don't have to go look up anything. Right? I can if I want to. But okay. if I sit down with my ballot to fill it out and I have my little voters pamphlet, I just read through it and I get a good sense of, well, this is what this ballot measure is and this is who supports it and who doesn't. And same with candidates. And I, when I got here and I was like, I kept, I was like, where's my voter's pamphlet? Don't, doesn't this exist everywhere? <laughs> it does not um, exist. No. Uh, and, you know, and now I have to like sit there and like get online and try and find whatever, you know, and it's the, the, the set of information that's available to me is actually just so much less. And, you know, and, and, you know, obviously there's media, you know, we, we live in the internet age, so you can actually find stuff, but it takes me a lot longer. And I feel like a lot of times I'm like, I don't really know where this person stands on this or that. And it bugs me. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, the ch- I mean, the, ch- the, the, the challenge of getting legitimate information is, 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 is significant as well. Exactly. Um, so having that, having that state published, voter guide with, a, like you said, a process for sort of determining what information is legit and what should be in there and what shouldn't. Um, that's a ton of work saved. 
So if you're a low information voter, as many of us are, you go into the voting box or you get your mail, your, your ballot at home, you can fill it out with, with relative comfort that the information you're using to make your choices is legitimate. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, in some sense, there's, you know, there's that level of education. And then there's also just the fact that civics education in the United States is not very robust. Right. Uh, well you know, put. a lot of it is multiple choice. It's very much like there's a thing called the president and there's the thing called, you know, and there's not enough of, look, this is what this does and this is how this actually works. And this is about state power and, you know, dealing with kind of helping people understand their position in that whole process. Um, you know, various studies have looked at it and it finds that, you know, in a lot of places, the education that we provide people who are coming into voting is insufficient to kind of help them understand both their role in this process and how to evaluate candidates and ballot measures and that whole set of things, but also just the fundamentals of this is the process for voting. Mm -hmm. You need to register in these ways. And if you, you know, these are when you have to change your registration and this is how you find out where to vote or how to vote and, you know, all of the, you know, and again, like, I've voted by mail my entire life, except for two elections. Uh, it's very easy. Like the ballot comes in the mail. <laughs> Although even then there's the process of, okay, you've got to use blue or black ink to fill it in. This right. is how you mark a ballot. You know, which is kind of, if you go back to the whole contested Florida election in 2000, you know, when, when, when the, the, the scientists finally came in and examined every ballot Right, and you find all these weird things that way that people filled in ballots. You know, there's this small percentage of people who write things or mark things, and you know, do things in ways which get their ballots invalidated. Mm -hmm. And all sorts you know, of weird stuff. All sorts of ways of both and how you fill it out. And if it's a mail ballot, it really does have to go into the envelope, and you do have to sign your name, and you need to sign yeah. your name the way that you've always signed your name because that's right. what they it's do. They go into check two envelopes. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's the first, the secrecy envelope, and then there's the one that has your signature on it. You know, and just that kind of educate. We don't educate people about this is how you what you need to do in order to make sure that your ballot will get counted. Uh, now, and you know, how do we trust that process and all that kind of stuff? So there's there's education barriers both at the what I'll call the big, you know, fundamental levels of why to vote and who to vote for and how to you know evaluate issues but then there's also just nuts and bolts education about you know that you know and this is where we've erected lots of barriers because it doesn't have to be as hard as we make it right and then you add on top of that the fact that we don't make election day a holiday so now i've got to if i don't if i want if, if i have to vote in person so i live in a state where right. i've got to do that I've got to find time to get to a polling place, which may not be conveniently located to me. And frequently I'm going to have to wait in line, which is another thing in November, now during COVID, right? So we keep layering these barriers on and, you know, and so how close is my polling place to me? That varies a lot. There are substantial percentages of people in this country that live in what are called voting deserts. That is, 
the nearest polling place to you is not anywhere close to you. And Bryce, draw that out a little bit. Like, are these sorts of voting deserts more often in rural areas, urban areas, low income, high income? Like, what? How does that kind of low income, largely minority, but also rural? You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of them are in the Southwest. You know, particularly the rural Southwest. Yep. But you know, they actually vary election to election because obviously polling places are constantly moving. And, you know, funding is changing, whatever. If people are interested, there is a paper that actually defined this and calculated it for each of the last, I think, three or four elections uh, that came out within the last six months. But, but yeah, so, you know, there's, there's how far is it? And then once I get there, how long will the line be? And we know from both survey evidence, which asks people to record how long it took them, and now from cell phone evidence, right? Where we basically say, oh, look, somebody showed up at a polling place and how long did they have to sit there? Was their phone tracking them there? That, yeah, I mean, you know, they are disproportionately in places where people spend a long time in at polls are disproportionately in, uh, you know, high minority neighborhoods. So for instance, if you're African-American, the odds that takes you more than 30 minutes to vote is... 80% 80% higher than if you're in a white area, you know, if you're in a predominantly sure. African-American neighborhood versus a predominantly white neighborhood. So the battle often gets simplified in the media narratives in terms of, you know, Democrats want more turnout and Republicans want less turnout. And that's, that's way too simple a way to look at it. It's, it's both parties want turnout, but they want the turnout of their supporters. You know, so th- then how do we kind of, given that government is 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 facing trade-offs between those in power and those without power how do we then construct a system where we can ensure that turnout is or the the ability to turn out vote is sort of equivalent across as many dimensions as possible well yeah i mean so we want I think personally, I think that the optimal system is one at a minimum in which the barriers that everybody faces are roughly the same. Mm-hmm. And, um, or we could just go full Australia and make voting compulsory, right? You know, I, I'm, I'm actually okay with that as well. But, you know, if we're going to not they, go... In, so draw that out. In, in Australia, how do they make it compulsory? Is it part of like your... Will you pay your taxes? Like how do they enforce... Yeah, I mean, I think they, you know, voting? yeah. I mean, I think if you don't vote, you get fined. Sure. Uh, I don't know how big the fine is. But election day in Australia is a holiday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the culture that has built around that is that, you know, there's a lots of, you know, kind of... You have like barbecues and all this other stuff. Sure, yeah. Make vote. it an event. But that that said, right, so, you know, just in terms of how do we make the playing field level, well, again, we start with making sure that we are not just in schools, but consistently educating people, right? We There should be a an effort to educate people consistently, both through media and paid media, of this is what it takes to vote. You know, there should be PSAs of, you know, it shouldn't it shouldn't just be people on my Twitter feed reminding people that in a lot of states today was the last day well, the day we recorded this was the last day to register to vote. Or did mm-hmm. do people in Montana know that you can register same day in Montana? But if you want to do it by mail, you've got to register by uh, October twenty sixth. You know, just 
these very basic processes we need to be educating people about. Second, we do need to ensure that, you know, well, ideally we would have some sort of automatic voter registration. Oregon uses it with with vehicle registration, yeah, right? Any, or license. Yes. Yeah. yeah. When you go when you uh register with the Department of Motor Vehicles, you are automatically registered to vote, which means in Oregon then you are automatically delivered a ballot with a voter's pamphlet. So, you know, I mean, I'll look, to the extent that people want to move more towards an Oregon style election system, obviously as somebody who lived under that regime and found it delightful, uh, I'm fully in favor. But, you know, we need to be working towards making sure that everybody has the same access to the ballot box. And by access, that doesn't just mean, oh, you're allowed to vote. That means that the effort that it requires you to vote is the same, Mm -hmm. right? You know, it shouldn't involve complicated, you know, if it's easy for me to vote, it should be easy for you to vote. Right. That's the simple thing. And I, you know, and you're right that people just want, Parties are about, oh, I want my people to vote, not your people to vote. I want everyone to vote, right? That's where we move towards that system of where there's already, there's enough other barriers in our system, as we've talked about two, three episodes ago, in terms of how we identify and use the state to address problems. But to the extent that we can improve the voting process so that at least the voices of the people are more accurately heard. That is a good thing. And so, yes, reducing barriers to voting, making sure that it is easy for people to vote and that, you know, again, ensuring that we also do what we already do to make sure that people are voting legitimately in the right spots. Um, but yeah, we need to make it as easy as possible for everyone to vote. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Kelly Webster, Chief of Stuff at the University of Montana, and you're listening to A New Angle. So you use that word legitimate there, voting legitimately. And that's like that's a sort of a standard critique of those who would, would be less uh, expansive in, in, in thinking about the franchise. They sort of claim that, oh, yeah, that'll lead to all kinds of voter fraud um, on a variety of levels. There doesn't appear to be much evidence of voter fraud, particularly associated with the expansiveness of the franchise. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, no, there's basically no evidence of... I mean, there is sometimes you can find evidence of it, but in the context of 140 million votes, uh, a handful of people who are either confused, because look, remember, in 150 million people, you're going to have people who are confused, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, vote in the wrong way or thought they were eligible to vote, but they aren't. You know, you're going to have some small amount of that. You know, you're going to have some amount of people who vote vote legitimately who might get disqualified for some reason because the system is not going to operate perfectly. But the amount of evidence that we have that this happens at a widespread level systematically is that it basically is exceptionally rare and Mm -hmm. certainly rare enough that it is almost impossible for it to decide an election. 
right? Now, again, we all lived through, or not all of us, but many of us lived through the Bush-Gore election, in which case it turns out that sometimes uh, the few hundred votes that are yeah, at issue will matter. But for the most part, you know, concerns about voter fraud are wildly overblown relative to, you know, I mean, and are almost always done in bad faith. I will say that, right? It is, yeah, yeah. it is not done as a means of, oh, we think this is a widespread problem because we've seen lots of evidence that this is a widespread problem. It's really, you know, a means to try and justify keeping people that you don't want voting to vote. Yeah, and it often seems sort of directed at a particular result or right. um, either sort of post hoc or in advance of that result in order to sort of create uh, distrust or invalidate uh, invalidate a result in advance. Um, and that, that can happen on any side of an issue. Um, this kind of leads us into, I mean, you mentioned sort of education as a prominent way we can sort of make voting as easy as possible to as many people as possible. One of the things that, that we're hearing a lot about, uh, particularly in the age of COVID, is mail-in ballots. So it seems like an appropriate time to turn to a new segment we're doing here on Incentives and Instincts. And we, you, if you're following us on Instagram, you might have noticed we've solicited listener questions, and we will select the best question uh, every month to uh, to answer live. So the question we have today is from a longtime listener and dear friend of the pod. Here we go. Hey, it's Dr. Sarah Rinfrey, the chair of the Department of Public Administration and Policy at the University of Montana. And my question for Bryson Justin this week is how mail-in ballots is going to impact turnout in terms of specific party there's been a lot of claims that it'll favor one party or the other. So is that a misnomer or do you have predictions on how that'll impact which party turns out with the presidential election this year? Thanks. Okay. So Dr. Rinfrey asks how, if there will be any differential effects of mail-in voting. Gosh, that, that's a hard question to answer. Um, you know, at least the research I've looked at about mail-in balloting, balloting in the past has not suggested any differences in partisan outcomes, uh, but there's a couple of kind of current factors that might throw some uh, uncertainty into that conclusion. Uh, Bryce, how do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, look, the to the extent that people have tried to study this, the evidence clearly suggests that there's not a partisan tilt. There is a turnout tilt. Uh, right. What about 2% is some of the numbers I've seen? Yeah, I mean, that's the most recent study is kind of a two percentage point boost in turnout. But yeah, there's at least when we look at the states like Oregon who move to uniform mail-in balloting, so everybody gets a ballot sent to them, we don't see any evidence that there's a partisan tilt to that shift. Just a slight boost. And so that would ultimately... That would ultimately be a good thing, like 2% increase in turnout without a partisan effect. I mean, that would seem to fulfill some of the objectives that, that you were talking about there, getting more people voting and getting it uh, doing that in such a way that the ease for everybody is, is as equal as possible. Well, yeah. And um, to be clear, I don't care if there's a partisan tilt. Right. As okay. long as the turnout goes up, as long as we move towards a more representative sample, 
right? It shouldn't matter that, you know, this shouldn't be, this is basically saying, well, look, we made it easier for people to vote. And it turned out that the people, there were more people that don't want what we want. So we should get rid of that. That's, that's the kind of illegitimate voter suppression that I, you know, that I think is illegitimate, right? It's anti-democratic. It, it undermines what we consider to be a core ideal of America, which is that the government is supposed to govern with the consent of the governed. And, you know, if we are trying to systematically make it harder for the people that are governed to have their voices heard, that's anti-American. And I don't, you know, so, you know, I, I'm happy to say that it, you know, you shouldn't be worried about this and we shouldn't be trying to undermine this thing, which boosts turnout because it is neutral. But in reality, it doesn't matter if it's neutral or not, because what matters is that it makes it easier for people to vote. And that's what we should be trying to do. And so in, in you think about like this particular election, 2020, I mean, going into it, you know, the COVID issues, uh, super salient. Like we don't want people gathering in place and taking those risks unnecessarily when mail-in is, is a reasonable alternative and maybe even a more effective and reliable alternative. And you think about it going into it, it's it's not immediately clear to me how expanding mail-in voting in the time of COVID would favor one party or another. Like you could create a theory um, for turnout for both sides uh, increasing under these circumstances. However, it's 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 been politicized. The president has, at least as recently as the as the debate last week said that vote, you know, vote by mail is going to be a mess. He said that Republicans will never be elected again if we, if we have all this vote by mail. So just the mere fact of the president kind of throwing in this um, partisan filtered language around mail-in voting, that might have an effect on the effects of expanding the franchise to mail-in. I don't necessarily know what those effects will be. I think you could think about it in a variety of ways, but but that creates a situation where it's really hard to know how to how to predict um, how this will have an effect. Yeah, I don't know why the president would try and discourage people uh, from voting. Period. Um, I certainly right. don't know why he's making it so that his own supporters are less likely to use something which makes it potentially easier for them to vote. You know, now look, there is a there is a trade-off with vote by mail in terms of that, you know, it is it is slightly more likely that your ballot will be invalidated. You know, I remember my brother checking whether his ballot had gone through and it had been rejected and he had to go back down and say, "No, no, I that really is my signature." So there hmm. is that, you know, there is a potential for more work uh, you know, in that people might need to make sure that their ballot actually got there uh, and that it was processed. But, you know, at the end of the day, like COVID fear is a real thing and it's potentially to be a real thing at a high level on, in the first week of November, uh, given case trends in particular parts of the country. So why, why add that cost to something that we, the president himself does, which is vote by mail? Yeah. I mean, there is, there is an obvious workaround and vote by mail appears to be a very safe and effective. And it's worth noting that vote by mail just means that the mail delivers your ballot and you have the option of mailing it back. Right. 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 So you, you know, this notion that, oh, the, you're going to fill in your ballot and someone's going to steal it. Like if you, if you're concerned about that, like you have, comp- in, in fact, in 
almost every election that I've voted by quote mail in, I dropped off my ballot, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, handed it to somebody in a polling place. Uh, or in Oregon, they had these little, these very fancy, uh, you know, they slots that you put them in, you drive by and slide it in. And I learned recently that they have their own fire suppression system. Um, that's these boxes. How, yeah. Wow. Like, so if somebody tried to throw a lighted match into, uh, into the box, the fire suppression system would catch that before any ballots burned. Well, that, I mean, that kind of raises the, the, the question of, of the postal service. I mean, that story has died down a little bit, probably displaced by just crazy news cycle these days, but yeah, this kind of defunding of postal service infrastructure, right at a time where we're going to have all this increase or potential increase in vote by mail, that's going to have wacky effects as well. It's unclear you know, how that could influence results other than just probably lower turnout in general. Um, that would be my sort of crude prediction. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a potential that, you know, going back again to our, how do we solve problems? Mm-hmm. An essential element of solving problem is trust. You have to trust that the institutions, that the systems, that you know, that these things are working, at, you know, in a way that is intended to be fair and impartial, and you know, respects everybody's, particularly with respect to voting. And the fact that there is an intentional effort to undermine trust in the postal system, particularly around elections, and there's also an intentional effort to undermine the election process and the election an election process which is been used this isn't nothing that's happening this year is novel other than the fact that there is a pandemic going on and we're slightly changing the mixes of how we do stuff but like the, the you know the effort to try and undermine stuff is disgusting on its face but it also yeah i mean it, it only serves to try and erode trust in the process which then potentially, and we don't know, has the ability to undermine, uh, you know, people's engagement in the process. And that's part of the reason why some people choose to do it is they want people to not participate. And everything we've talked about thus far, you know, is sort of, I don't necessarily want to describe it as legitimate, but like these are, these efforts to suppress the vote or discourage the vote or make it harder to vote. Those are all sort of being done through um, traditional channels of power where we haven't even considered the world of misinformation and misinformation through social media, various other news outlets, et cetera. But that, that can be a real problem too, particularly when we're living in a world where people, people, um, they get basically a curated, particularly if your source of news is you know Facebook, um, you get a curated form of information that uh, is different than people that see the world differently. And, and that can lead to all kinds of misinformation and, and voter suppression um, uh, tactics and things that, that are far more nefarious and harder to kind of observe and measure. Well, not only yeah. So I mean, there's the the there's the suppression effect, which you know, I mean, we've I don't know. Recently, they somebody pointed out that there was some Russian effort to target a certain set of you know several million African American voters and make it so they didn't vote. 
right? So there is that right. kind of misinformation. There's the type of misinformation that's designed to make it so that you don't vote. But there's also then the misinformation that's designed to get you to vote in a way that's not voter fraud and that you you weren't supposed to be able to vote, but convince you to vote on issues which they're, you know, essentially they're lying to you about what the issues are, what their positions on issues are, what their opponent, your opponent's positions are. And, you know, that's a, you know, that has nothing to do with the how many people actually vote, but it certainly has to do with the larger problem that we face. And, you know, in terms of, again, ultimately this is about identifying and solving problems, right? That's what all of this is about. And to the extent that our information ecosystems have become highly polluted by people who are intentionally uh, misinforming you in, in order to sow discontent and, you know, steer you towards actions that you might not otherwise, you might otherwise not take. These are big problems. They are part of that larger puzzle or the cogs that I think I've talked about in prior uh, you know, episodes of this series. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, at some point, one of the things that we're going to have to deal with collectively is this pollution of our information ecosystem. You know, the fact that the information that people are consuming, uh, you know, what's directing their attention, you know, how that's being steered is, yeah, it's frequently garbage and it's garbage on all sides. I mean, you know, I mean, there's some disproportionality there, but like, you know, I certainly see things in my feed from people who are otherwise kind of, you know, supposedly respectable. And I'm like, no, no, you have misinterpreted that and you have intentionally elevated the temperature on that. And I, because I know something about that topic, you know, and the more, you know, the more you kind of come across stuff, you're like, well, I know the facts on that. Then, you know, it kind of undermines our whole system. And, you know, a lot of it's basically because the attention economy is, yeah, we're not well designed for it as humans, and we certainly haven't designed our institutions to be able to help us cultivate that. Uh, our, you know, what comes into our attention space uh, in ways that lead us towards, you know, the reason and information that ultimately democracy and voting is supposed to be based on, right? Because that's what it comes back to, right? Is voting is about us holding the state accountable. And if I can be easily misled about what the state is doing, and then, you know, you're basically kind of stealing my vote and making it so that I'm not holding the state accountable for the things that I, it should be holding it accountable. And I am instead voting based on kind of made up or misleading stuff. And that frustrates me to no end. And, you know, anybody who's listened to enough political ads in Montana over the past months and, you know, then goes and bothers to fact check those things should also be frustrated to no end because there's a lot of misleading claims. Yeah. I I think that's a really sharp way of putting it. And I I do think I will add that, that it's really tempting to think that um, this is sort of asymmetrical. A lot of people look at like, Oh, the other side does this much worse. And that that's fanciful thinking. I mean, this, like you said, Bryce, this occurs on both sides and to think that the information on one side is more rubbish than the information on your side, like that's that's just that's dangerous thinking. 
And I think we, we need to move past that. And I think that's actually, we should plant a, a flag there because we should come back to this information economy and how it's designed in, in a future episode and really, really draw that out. Cause it's a, it's a topic we've danced around and gotten into a little bit, but we haven't really gone deep on. So uh, let's hold there. Uh, before we move on to our next section, Bryce, any other uh, thoughts about just differential effects of mail-in um, as, we, as we try to work through Dr. Rinfrey's question? I mean, yeah. I mean, like, under normal circumstances, this would be a nothing burger. burger. Uh, under these particular circumstances where it has been politicized intentionally, um, who knows? And, you know, you add in also a pandemic and some other stuff. Uh, it's hard to know. I do think, you know... Uh, all else equal, I would say, yeah, we'll boost turnout, but all else is equal. So I have no idea. Um, yeah, I think well is the short version. All right. Well, we'll have to see, um, like most things in life. So speaking of, we'll have to see. So we're going to introduce another new segment today, and that is we're going to close these incentives and instincts episodes with predictions. And, uh, as one of my favorite, uh, physicists, Niels Bohr famously said, prediction is difficult especially of the future. So here we go. My prediction um, is that this fall, this election, we will experience a record voter turnout on the order of 60 plus percent. However, we won't know on election night who the winner is. And I think what the sort of takeaway for me when I think about that or when I sort of conceptualize the next few weeks that way, I think that media outlets and social media platforms need to start, well, that more than start, they need to have been doing this for a long time ago. They need to start thinking about how to responsibly frame and deliver information about the results. The sort of traditional horse race coverage that we all to, are accustomed to tuning into um, and has been carefully choreographed over the years to hold our attention on election night. I think we need to rethink that. Um, particularly in light of you know, potential large surge in mail-in voting. It, it, it just this whole thing has the potential to play out entirely differently. We have to really make careful choices as, as a society about how we kind of handle information in that moment. Um, we'll see how it goes. Bryce, how about you? Do you have a prediction? Well, let me just, I, do I not get to comment on your predictions? Of course. Yeah. Uh, comment away. So I, I I think I agree that this will there's going to be a high this will be a high turnout election uh, and probably a you know modern record and I also agree that we in light of the increased use of mail balloting and in particular the fact that the rules do vary by state in terms of does the ballot have to be returned by 8 p.m. on election day or does it right. have to be postmarked by election day. Um, and there's big variation in that. That said, um, you know, it's, I'll be surprised if we don't have a good idea who the winner, uh, at least of the presidential election, like in terms of, okay. you know, obviously when it comes to house and Senate, those things, as we saw in 2018, that's just going to be exacerbated at the local level in terms of, uh, you know, obviously California being the you know, the, the big, the big state that has the postmarked by and not the returned by, but a lot of states have returned by, including Montana. Um, you know, Montana, uh, you know, is a, uh, it has to be returned by 8 PM on election day. So, 
you know, although in Montana, if it's close, then we won't know until the next day anyway. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and that's, you know, and so the, the point really is, is that we just need to present information to people, uh, you know, correctly. And, you know, one thing that I saw online recently was, you know, if they're, if, if they're going to show a pie chart of what the vote it currently is, yep. they need to have a slice for vote remaining. Um, you know, so basically you can't sit there and say, well, look, we're ahead, right? Without seeing yeah. that there's this giant wedge that's still outstanding. And, you know, obviously like the New York Times needle and various things are attempts to try and help people grasp that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, hopefully people will behave responsibly uh, in terms of how they're presenting information on uh, election day and throughout in terms of what the vote is and how much is outstanding and what we know and don't know. And, you know, you just have to, you know, as long as people are prepared for that, we should be able to handle that. That's not that big of a deal. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we will okay. see. Uh, so in terms <laughs> of my prediction, uh, sticking with predictions related to the election that aren't actually about electoral outcomes, because I don't want to play pundit. I will say that I will predict that we will probably actually see more uh, evidence of voter fraud than we do under normal circumstances. I think that you're going to see various people behave in inappropriate manners, in part because the temperature around this election is too high, high. Uh, and in part because the president has actively told his supporters to commit voter fraud. Uh, you know, vote by mail and then vote by person, that's a felony. And, you know, in these types of circumstances in which the leadership is actively encouraging dirty tricks, you know, that's gonna, you know, that's gonna spill over. Now, will it spill over in any meaningful sense? I doubt it. Uh, Most people are good people and don't want to commit voter fraud, and they play by the rules. But to the extent that there are people out there who um, want to break the rules, some will try. And they will likely learn what most people learn, which is that when you try, you're going to get caught, you know, and unfortunately for them, that means that they will face felony charges. Yeah. Not to mention poll watchers and other shenanigans. And it does seem like a bit of a tinderbox. I don't want to get too dystopian at the end here, but um, yeah. Well, look, I mean, yep. but the, the good news is that, you know, places are preparing for this, right? You know, and, True. you know, it's yep. fine for, you know, again, the president to try and call out his illegal poll suppression operations, but law enforcement has started making it clear that's illegal and we will arrest you for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and hotlines are being set up. And, you know, if you, you encounter it, you know, you're going to, my guess is, we're, you know, you hear all sorts of stuff like this every election day, right? Because the, the news media has nothing to report on all day on election day. Right. So they just fixate on, Oh, some gang of people showed up here or, you know, lines are too long here. Right. You know, and here's a question for our listeners, right? Like, you know, how many people stand in line for hours to vote? Turns out it's not very many. Right. You know, again, based on that cell phone evidence we talked about earlier, at least in 2018, when they did that, you know, the average person took 18 minutes to vote and almost Mm. everybody votes in less than 30. But, you know, if you watch the media, it makes it seem like there's these enormous long lines that take a lot of long lines. 
because you know, and it, it absolutely happens, and it absolutely shouldn't happen. But the, you know, part of it is, is again, you know, this is about the information that we're receiving, uh, and you know, what the market, the information marketplace has basically incentivized, you know, created incentives for, is lots of sensationalized coverage, which stokes anger and hatred and fear. Um, but doesn't actually provide you with a, an appropriate scale for information to evaluate the problem and decide what you should do about it. Well, that seems like a good place to land it, Bryce. As always, a pleasure. Uh, folks, when we speak to you next sometime in late November, hopefully this will all be uh, sorted out, but maybe it'll just be the end of the beginning. We'll see. Um, yeah. Anyway, in the meantime, be well and take care. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot with support from the University of Montana College of Business and Consolidated Electrical Distributors. AJ Williams is our producer. Jeff Ament, John Wicks, and VTO made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you like what you heard, Tell your friends about us. Thanks a lot and see you next time.